Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Tomsa from La Trobe University. Today, we are continuing our coverage of the COVID-19 health crisis in Indonesia, focusing on the role of the media in reporting about the crisis. Many foreign media outlets have been highly critical of the Indonesian government's handling of the crisis, but within Indonesia itself, the local media seems far less inclined to question the government's statistics and policy announcements. What explains this discrepancy in reporting standards? Are Indonesian journalists self-censoring because perhaps the space for dissent is shrinking in Indonesia? Are foreign journalists exaggerating the extent of the crisis in Indonesia? To discuss these and other questions, I'm joined today by Febriana Firdaus, an Indonesian freelance journalist currently based in Bali, and Max Walden, a reporter and producer with the ABC Asia Pacific Newsroom in Melbourne and a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne's Asian Law Center. Febriana, Max, welcome to Talking Indonesia. Thank you. Thank you. Febri, let me start with you, because um, you're currently based in Bali, and um, I'd like to start by asking you, how's the situation over there? What measures are currently in place to contain the virus in Bali, and how are people coping, including yourself? I live in the central to north Bali. It's more quiet than the other part of Bali, for example, in the coastal, like in Kuta or Sanur or, or Changu, for example. So here people, they have their own village lockdown, for example, in my village or my Banjar. It's been twice we apply this local lockdown, so I cannot go anywhere. You have to get permit if you want to go to outside like outside Bali for example travel to another province or even like abroad it's very strict here but the most important that we have to hike like what happened in Bali right now what it's worth the measure it is because the important role of the adult village for example me in Jakarta didn't realize before that actually there are two kind of village administrative in Bali. First is the village units formed by the central government, but there is another village unit formed by the Adat Council or Customary Council. This Adat village, they have more authority to handle all the business in Bali. For example, like handling this coronavirus, they have absolute authority to tell all the Balinese to stay at home, for example. And Balinese is very obedient. So I don't see any Balinese try to break the rules here. So I personally feel safe here in my Banjar because no one like the outsider or anyone that I don't know, like visit my Banjar without report themselves to the local police of Pechalang, for example. So Bali is pretty safe if you stay at home. Mm, 
Uh, thanks for that update. Well, I'm glad to hear you're safe. And of course, Bali is uh, well known to foreigners as the most popular tourist destination, but it was also the place where a tourist became the first COVID-19 casualty in Indonesia when a British tourist died there in March. And of course, this was happening against the background of highly critical coverage of Indonesia's response to COVID-19 in the international media. So Max, if I can ask you as an Australian journalist covering events and developments in Southeast Asia, how did you see these early responses from the Indonesian government? What kind of information did you back then and are you still now relying on when you're reporting on COVID-19 in Indonesia? Yeah, well, there was certainly lots of skepticism um, of the fact that Indonesia had not reported any cases until early March. You know, it's a densely populated country. There's direct flights from Bali to the city of Wuhan, uh, where the disease was first detected. Its neighbour, Singapore, reported a bunch of cases early on, the Jakarta-Singapore leg being the third busiest international air route in the world. And given we were hearing from travellers that there were virtually no health checks or testing at Sukarno-Hatta, it simply defied logic that Indonesia had zero cases. And yet some of the rhetoric from leaders and, and officials that Indonesia's avoidance of coronavirus uh, had been due to prayer or hot weather, you know, it was undeniably concerning and not based on, on scientific evidence. Getting um, accurate information has been a challenge. You know, we've, we've interviewed epidemiologists who know about these public health issues and the scepticism around zero cases really was coming from people that know more about COVID-19 than, than you or I. But as I say, getting that accurate data uh, continues to be a challenge in Indonesia where, where testing remains relatively low compared to other countries. I think the early response from the Indonesian government focused more on tourism industries because they want to cover up the other fact that the government don't have the material to test the coronavirus. They don't have it. I feel that they are trying to save the conversation from the responsibility that they should take to another topic, like, for example, economy. Mm -hmm. And they were, they were quite dismissive early on. Um, I remember when this Harvard study came out and provided modeling that showed that it was highly unlikely that there were no cases or very few cases. I think it was the health minister or some member of government who was quite dismissive of that and saying, oh, that can't be true, it's just a model. I'm trying to ask for the transparency, right? We need the data, we need how many of the Indonesian actually now under surveillance. And then the spokesperson of the COVID task force told me personally that I should not write something that make Indonesia bad. So this is typically when Indonesian journalist is trying to cover story with more critical angle the official just like turn us down by saying that you should write positive news about indonesia not like uh, questioning indonesian government because we are working hard right now yeah is it difficult then for journalists to try to dig a bit deeper I think the problem is that because Indonesian journalists have to cover so many stories about the COVID and the newsroom floated with so many information, it's hard for them sometimes to focus on specific angle, like going a deep dive to the data, except some of the newsroom 
uh, like for example, Tempo, Jakarta Post, and Kompas, I think they have a special team. So they have more time to do in-depth reporting and publish an article with a more critical angle than the other who just published like the statement from the official. But for foreign journalists, they don't have to cover so many stories like us, like Indonesian or local journalists. They have more time to go deep on the data, for example. So I think like that, that's like a different situation. I would agree with February on that point in terms of, you know, to be fair to the Indonesian media, you know, many journalists that work for major outlets are required to have you know, really immense output and turn things around quickly at the expense of deeper investigation or clarification. You know, if you attend any press conference in Indonesia, you can always see young reporters at the back madly bashing things out on their laptop. Outlets like, you know, Detik are often criticised for getting it wrong. And whilst there might sometimes be kind of a laziness or unwillingness to properly fact check things if it's getting good traffic, I'd also argue that it is the pressure to get a story first in why Indonesian outlets aren't necessarily leading the way in questioning the Indonesian government's approach to COVID-19. But one thing I did want to also point to has been, I guess, media coverage, um, you know, of, of issues regarding presidential staffers' conflict of interest in regards to COVID-19 contracting. You know, this is sort of an issue that hasn't necessarily been of interest to so much to international audiences, but certainly has been covered by the Indonesian media. And I would say that was one aspect of, you know, the coronavirus and accountability on the part of the government that I think the Indonesian media has done quite a good job in covering. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. Very good point. Hmm. I wanted to ask you, Max, though, about the reports that have been done by external media. There's been a bit of criticism of that, not only in Indonesia. Indonesian officials have, as, as Fabi said earlier on, have been a bit sensitive to this. They don't want negative coverage, right? But also overseas themselves, some people have said that oh, the foreign media is overly critical of Indonesia. It doesn't provide enough context of what's happening on the ground. It, it threatens to reinforce old images of Indonesia as the sort of the sick man of Asia, so to speak, that constantly needs help and is ill-equipped to deal with such a crisis. Do you share this view? Has there been, I mean, you work obviously for an Australian media outlet. Um, do you think sometimes maybe the depictions of the Indonesian situation have been exaggerated? Yeah, look, I certainly haven't agreed with all that's been published about Indonesia during the coronavirus pandemic and, and definitely don't think there's any risk of it becoming a failed state. There are huge and terrifying public health and economic risks for Indonesia, but some experts I've spoken to are quite heartened by the fact that, of course, Indonesia has, for example, the ability to to distribute welfare. You know, it's been through economic crises before. Its specific neighbours and, and poorer countries in Southeast Asia, by contrast, don't have that capacity. So there are definitely strengths that Indonesia has, but nevertheless, I would make the point that it's not journalists' job to make the Jokowi administration uh, look good or, you know, do their PR. There clearly are problems uh, with the approach and it's the media's job to question and to highlight that if, if that's the case. I know there has been, you know, some criticism and certainly even on an interpersonal level, 
Um, you know, I've had people express to me that they feel there needs to be more, I guess, positive coverage of, of what's happening in Indonesia. Uh, but I think it was Ross Tapsell from the Australian National University that noted, you know, coverage of Indonesia throughout coronavirus has pretty much mirrored coverage of any other country. You know, you focus on on the numbers and other updates regarding the situation, government policy. It's essentially looking at elite politics. You know, that's the case for, for Indonesia. It's the case for China. It's the case for the United States. So the idea that that all foreign journalists covering Indonesia are somehow applying, you know, like a misinformed orientalist lens to reporting this crisis is is not true, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Do you think, though, that something is missing? As you said, if the focus is on the numbers and elite politics, that Fabri was pointing out earlier on that in Bali, for example, um, it's the Arad community that enforces the local lockdown best. Are there perhaps stories that we're missing in order to get a bigger picture of what's actually happening? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, I think some of those issues are obviously really interesting. And I think as the crisis goes along, we will probably um, see more coverage in that regard. Obviously, there's the practical reality of the fact that to be reporting from Bali or reporting from other parts of Indonesia and and looking at those um, situations on the ground requires the, the resources to do so. And clearly for foreign media, you know, that's not always the case. There's also what audiences want. Charity initiatives are kind of happening everywhere in the world. And again, I would say that that's certainly not been the focus of, of reporting more generally. It, it all comes down to, I guess, what, what audiences uh, want or what we think they want. Nowadays, we can, we can tell exactly what audience are clicking on, what they want to know. Um, and generally speaking, I suppose, uh, looking at, I guess, community-based stories uh, at the height of a, of a very deadly, scary crisis is, is not always uh, what people uh, are looking for. And thirdly, I would acknowledge that I think, you know, that there's definitely scope for more of that. And, you know, I'd love to more, to read more about the particular uh, circumstances in Bali. But I, my impression is that perhaps this sort of reporting will become richer as time goes on and the crisis is perhaps a little bit less urgent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you speak of different audiences. Given that to the outside world, it often appears that the Indonesian response has been inadequate. Um, I'd be interested to hear what the Indonesian public thinks about the Indonesian government's response. Because I live in Bali, so maybe like I talk a lot with the Baliners. Baliners see the central government as they as the, the government didn't take the responsibility to take care of the Indonesian, especially outside the Java Island. That's why the Bali uh, stepped up and then they just uh, arranged their own lockdown. Basically, it is a response from Balinese. They are still waiting for the government to handle this crisis nationally. So um, we are waiting for the government to do more tests. That's the first thing. And I think in another province, like for example, West Java, if you notice West Java and the Central Java, and then even like Jakarta province, the local leaders show leadership more than the central government. So right now, I think Jokowi is not in a good position. I don't know what happened inside of the palace, but someone has to take that job on how to communicate better with the regional government. Just going back to what you mentioned, Dirk, around, I guess, popularity, 
I looked um, at YouGov, which is a UK pollster, and unfortunately, they don't have data regarding attitudes um, amongst the Indonesian population to the government response. The only ones in the Asia-Pacific that they do have are Australia, India, Vietnam, and Japan. But there's populations' attitudes to a range of different particular kinds of measures that governments can implement. For example, only one in 10 Indonesians have supported cancelling all non-essential medical procedures, for example. And there's fairly low support for a range of other measures that like governments could take, for example, uh, shutting down schools. Only around half of Indonesians have said that they're, they're supportive of that. So I think there's probably something interesting that we could think about in terms of, you know, if Indonesia has avoided a full-scale lockdown. It does seem that the Indonesian population is generally not super supportive of a, you know, major enforced lockdown, say, like what we've seen in in Malaysia. Um, Obviously, it's difficult to gauge their attitudes to Jokowi. I haven't necessarily looked into domestic polls, but just in terms of people's thinking about various measures the government could be taking, it doesn't seem as though there would be a huge amount of support for stricter measures. Um, And I imagine this is largely to do with, you know, economic anxiety. Obviously, there's a lot of people that live hand to mouth in Indonesia and those kind of enforced lockdowns uh, invariably having a large impact, even under PSBB or large scale social, what do they call it? Large scale social restrictions. Certainly, we're already seeing, you know, millions of people becoming unemployed, large economic fallout from that. So my impression is that it's probably complicated. As February said, there's definitely segments of the population that are anxious and, and very critical. And I think we've seen that with the, you know, Indonesia Tosara hashtag campaign that's kind of emerged in the last week or so. Clearly, there's a lot of people that are feeling frustrated and, and anxious and, and angry with the government. But I also think just more broadly, if we take YouGov's data in in regards to particular kinds of measures that the government could be taking, I'm guessing that a lot of Indonesians probably don't want stronger lockdown restrictions per se. Yeah, I'm only aware of a survey that was conducted about a month ago in April by um, a local pollster, which largely confirmed what um, you have been saying now that local governments have been given the thumbs up, basically, mm-hmm. especially, interestingly enough, in Bali. Bali recorded very high approval ratings for the measures that the provincial and local governments have been doing, whereas the endorsement of the measures taken by the national governments were slightly lower, where around the 50, 50% mark, I think, or slightly up. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about the YouGov information there as well. I do think it's interesting too, I guess, looking at different levels of Indonesian government, I feel as though there's been probably a pretty similar pattern in terms of we've seen uh, sometimes outright conflict between, say, Anis in Jakarta or Ridwan Kamil in, in West Java, you know, obviously at times defying the central government and, and kind of going their own way. Um, you know, I think James Masola called Anis the Andrew Koimo of Indonesia, but in a way this provincial and and even lower level authorities kind of doing their own thing and seeing them, I guess, really rise to national prominence as well. But so it's a very similar pattern to what we've seen in Australia with, um, you know, state premiers um, really taking the lead. And, and certainly, yeah, in the US context, people like Andrew Cuomo in, 
in New York or, or other state governors. So yeah, for sure. In in Bali, in is the opposite. I mean, Wayan Koster, the governor of Bali, just like uh, take a credit for the hard work of the Adat village. It's not because of him, unfortunately. Well, emergency situations like this one often provide opportunities for governments to also push through with other agendas that they may have. In Indonesia, before the COVID-19 crisis hit, there was a lot of discussion about the expanding use of the information and electronic transaction law to silence mm-hmm. dissent. And now yeah. in the context of COVID-19, some people have raised questions maybe the, about the lack of critical reporting about this that this may perhaps have to do with this you know, shrinking space for civil society, media, to actually ask critical questions. Do you think that it's more difficult for journalists to report on sensitive issues, given that we have an emergency situation where the government is sensitive to criticism and we have the broader context in which the government has been clamping down on dissent anyway? I think like after the Papua unrest, it is very difficult for any foreign journalist right now to travel to West Papua. I spoke to Kate Lamb, the former correspondent of Guardian, and now she's in Reuters. She said that it is impossible for me to travel to West Papua again after she wrote a very critical piece on the Papua unrest. So earlier this year, we saw... Phil Jacobson of Monga Bay detained for a long period of time and then deported. Of course, Beck Henschke of BBC ran into some trouble, um, you know, if we're talking about Papua. And also anecdotally, colleagues from other international news organisations say that it's become extremely difficult to obtain journalist visas, particularly around the election last year. Um, I'm not really sure if there's been any movement on that, but... um, yeah, that, that's sort of what, what I understand to be the case. I'm not really sure that the government is yet so sensitive about what foreign audiences think about Indonesia, aside from what February says about tourism, obviously, is, you know, is a good point. Of course, the government spent quite a lot of money hiring influencers to, to talk about Indonesia as a tourist destination early on in the crisis. But I'm not exactly sure that they would go as far as you know limit what foreign outlets you know are allowed to say or or ban outlets or or even for domestic media for that matter um you know i can't really see any sort of consequences for media outlets that that report critically you know like we've seen in the philippines in the case of abs cbn being taken off the air by by the government of rodrigo duterte I, i can't really see anything vaguely like that happening in indonesia But certainly there are some fairly concerning crackdowns on freedom of speech, Um, not necessarily against journalists, but of course there was the high-profile case of Ravio Patra recently. There's some uncertainties around what exactly happened. However, he was certainly a very critical voice who had had written in the media um, about Indonesia's COVID response. And he, he was detained um, after some very suspicious messages were sent from his, his WhatsApp account, which, you know, there's, there's a lot of evidence to suggest it was, it was hacked. Now, who did that? Not, we don't know. However, this certainly uh, is a very concerning development. And he's not the only one to have been arrested. There have been other people too. 
you know, rounded up for what they've said, say, on social media in regards to the, the government's response. So I would say, uh, from my perspective, I, I haven't necessarily detected a shrinking space for media per se to, to speak on this, even though there have been officials saying things like, well, you know, February said on an interpersonal level, being told not to write negative things about Indonesia. And, and certainly this has been said publicly as well. But um, at this stage, I can't really see anything that's concretely forcing people not to write, certainly not journalists, but but definitely uh, you mentioned civil society. I think that is probably more of a concern. Mm, all right. Well, maybe we should finish um, in Bali and we should finish maybe by looking ahead a little bit. Bali, as I said uh, at the beginning, was the, the first province to record uh, fatality from COVID-19 in Indonesia, or at least an officially recognized one. It's also the one where a lot of people now are looking towards perhaps easing of restrictions and opening, because as I said, obviously Bali is the gateway to Indonesia for a lot of people from the outside world. Um, so I read the other day that there are plans afoot or at least hopes, uh, to reopen Bali for tourism um, as early as October, I think. For someone living there, do you think that's a realistic option or is that just another sort of ill-informed judgment by the government just keen on trying to re-stimulate the economy? Yeah, I read that, that article and unfortunately the only interview the province official. I think if I'm um if I don't live in Bali, I will do the same. If I only report Bali from uh, Jakarta, I will like treat Bali just like the other province. Just interview the local province. It is a bit concerning if uh, anyone in Jakarta only asks the opinion from the official of the province because the official of the province will ask the Adat Council whether we are going to open Bali for tourism in October or not. So it is important to interview the Bandesa Agung and other local Bandesa, Bandesa is the Adat village, ask their opinion whether it is impossible and realistic to open Bali in October. That's what we, are, we need to do as a reporter. And I see that in the end, like I know this article, like uh, share about so many media around the world. Oh, Bali will open in October. And it ended up like a framing. I feel like that we are still trying to flatten the curve because the case of the local transmission from the migrant worker, because most of the case in Bali right now, who who which is confirmed is from the migrant worker it it's it's like the number is rising and the number has jumped we want to flatten that if the bali successfully flattened that curve then we can talk about that i think um bali is going to be better in october but it's important if we want to cover the story we need to include the comment from the other yeah let's hope that it will be better um whether it will be open or not that's a different matter but yeah let's first of all hope that uh, you'll be able to flatten the curve and that the situation will generally improve so thanks very much for your insights both of you febriana and max 
So that was the latest Talking Indonesia podcast episode with Febriana Fierdaus and Max Walden and myself, your host, Dirk Tomsa from Latrobe University. Please join us again for the next episode on the 4th of June. And finally, as ever, don't forget that you can find the entire archive of the podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or you can subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening and till next time.